medicine is evidence-based if there's if it's evidence-based it's it's medicine there is no alternative medicine right that's called pseudoscience and that's things like homeopathy um endocrine disrupting chemicals discussion about pesticides and uh, carcinogenic compounds produced from cooking methods that's not alternative anything that's that's evidence-based medicine um and i think people would would be surprised with the uh the amount of benefit they could experience from taking things like that more seriously and making a concentrated effort to alter their cooking methods um alter the fats they cook with to reduce the levels you know to change their hair and skin products so that they pick ones that literally use more you know natural ingredients you are just listening to nutrition expert alex leaf what's up my friend and welcome back to another episode of the legendary life podcast i'm your host health and fitness expert ted rice and this is the show that's for entrepreneurs executives and high achievers so if you're looking to boost your energy if you're looking to optimize your health if you're looking to take your life to that next level, to have the energy and focus and drive to go after everything that you want in life, you are in the right place. And today's show is a very special one because Alex is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to nutrition. And we're going to go over things you've never heard before. I guarantee you, you have not heard the types of things that we're going to cover in today's episode. And what I love about Alex is that he works for one of my favorite websites, examine.com. And he's here today just to share his information. He's not promoting a book or promoting a product. Like I have a lot of guests who do that, which is completely fine. It's part of the business, but it's extra special today because Alex is just taking his time being so generous. Of course, he's promoting examine.com, which I promote as well. It's one of my go-to places to learn the objective information regarding nutritional supplements on the market, make sure you go to examine.com and check out any supplement that you want to know more about. And it will help give you an unbiased perspective on the supplement that you're thinking about purchasing. And no, they don't pay me to say that. I'm just a huge fan of what they do. And Alex is here today to talk about some little known nutrition hacks that can help you level up your health. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you know all about calories and macronutrients and you know that calorie deficit is the thing that causes fat loss and the thing that drives health improvement. So for while a lot of people are focused or <laughs> distracted by is probably a better way to say Oh, should I do intermittent fasting? Should I do a low-fat diet? Should I do Atkins? Should I do ketogenic? Should I do low-carb? You know better. You know the mechanisms behind what actually works, the principles that cause the true health and body composition changes that we're all looking for from our nutrition. However, there are some little-known nutrition hacks that can help you step things up even more. So we're going to be talking about things like advanced glycation in products and heterocyclic amines and polyaromatic hydrocarbons and what all those things have to do with your health, with the cooking methods you use and with the types of cooking oils that you use. And you're going to learn a lot. And I got to tell you, If you've been listening to the show for a while, make sure you share this information. Share it on Facebook or wherever you hang out. Email it to some colleagues. Get this information out if you appreciate what I do. Sharing is caring and it's the highest compliment you can give me. And if you're new to the show, make sure you click that subscribe button so every time one of my episodes come out on Monday and Wednesday, you will be the first to know you'll get it right in your inbox or your podcast app or wherever you subscribe to podcasts. All right, my friend, let's step into this interview with nutrition expert, Alex Leaf. Alex Leaf, thanks for coming on the show, man. Really excited to speak with you. It's a pleasure, Ted. Thanks for inviting me. 
Yeah, and I talked a little bit about you in the intro. You are a researcher for examine.com, one of my favorite resources for unbiased information when it comes to supplements, but you guys do more than supplements. You talk about nutrition, you talk about the latest studies, you talk about even fitness. So, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation because I feel it's a conversation that isn't had enough when people are talking about nutrition and and health in general. So it's going to be great, man. I'm looking forward to it. Um, Before we get started, you want to talk a little bit about uh, who you are and what you do besides the the research part? How did this whole thing, just briefly, how did you get into this, this line of, uh, of working in the health and fitness industry and then becoming a researcher? Oh, wow. Um, okay. So I ha- was a competitive wrestler since elementary school and I oh, did that all nice. the way up through, yeah. So I did that all the way up through high school. And then I stopped because the college that I went to for my undergrad didn't have a wrestling program. And so it just kind of ended there. And that's, I focused more on academics and my undergrad degree is actually in accounting with a minor in philosophy and ethics. But then I completed an internship for Boeing, the airplane company. And I realized that I didn't want to spend my life working in finance. And I was really into, it was around this time, uh, you know, I spent my spare time checking out all the blogs and following people like Adele Musa at Subversity. He was one of the first that I got in touch with. And that's also how I found out about Examine. And so I was just soaking up a lot of blog knowledge and starting to become more familiar with PubMed. And I decided that I wanted to do something related to health and fitness. Um, So I became a personal trainer and started doing that while also completing all of the science prerequisite courses that I needed to have to apply to a master's nutrition program which I did and I completed at Bastyr University here in Seattle. And so when I started my master program at Bastyr, I was contacted by Kamal and Saul to write the ERD articles for the Examine Research Digest when it first launched. And so that's how I got my foot in the door with Examine. And then once I graduated and I didn't have school taken up most of my time anymore, they liked my work and offered me a full-time position. So that's where I'm at now. Yeah, very cool, man. And uh, if you're listening right now, maybe this is the first episode that you're listening to you got to check out examine.com. It is just a wealth of information, free information on the different types of supplements. And if you're going to take a supplement, you know, it's so funny, Alex, and and I don't want to talk about supplements so much today. We, We talk a lot about it on the show, but people will read the marketing and they'll like, I don't know, they'll talk about the, the marketing claims, but what I always say, it's like, go read the ingredients label, look at the amounts of each ingredient, then go on to examine, look up each ingredient, look at the doses that were used in the studies, and that's how you know. Uh, that's how you know if it's a good supplement or not. And if they have a proprietary blend and they don't even tell you how much is on this supplement, well, that's a, a huge red flag. So yeah. Really love blends. The proprietary (laughs) blends really kill me. But there is a small cheat people can use with those is that even though they don't have to list the specific amounts of the ingredients, they still have to be listed in order of weight within the supplement. Mm. So have a list and they say like, okay, there's one gram of these four different compounds in there. Then if you do simple math, it tells you that the that each compound 
could theoretically have around 250 milligrams if they space it out. Or it could tell you, you know, like with caffeine and B6, those are in energy drinks, right? So mm-hmm. if you look at six and they tell you, oh, it's, you know, this percent of the daily value, go look up what that number is. And if, for example, caffeine is below B6, you know, it has less than that milligram amount. I love it, man. Order of weight. So you can kind of figure out general, you know, is it going to at least be within a plausible range where it could help you? Excellent. Well, there you go, folks. There you have it. A pro tip about figuring out your supplement, even if it has a proprietary blend. I love that, man. I, I have not thought about it that way, but it's uh, it's very logical. Well, Alex, the reason why I really was excited to have you on the show today is because we're Facebook friends. I follow you there and I've, I've just been watching you. I read, I won't say every post that you make because you, you post a lot of great stuff, but uh, the ones that really catch my eye are you've brought up some great points about health and nutrition. And today's topic, I really wanted to tackle people's misconceptions about, say, health and nutrition and fat loss. So we know, let's just uh, set some ground rules here. So fat loss is determined by your calorie intake and output. And that is kind of it with some changes in protein and your exercise and your non-exercise, uh, non-exercise activity thermogenesis and the thermic effect of food, all, the, all that stuff. As long as you have those things dialed in, you lose body fat, but you're not necessarily as healthy as you could be. And today I wanted to talk about really the things that don't get mentioned enough, I feel, when people are talking about health and fat loss. The first thing I want to ask you, man, is let's use the lens of health here. So we're not talking about people who are looking to step on stage and pose in in posing trunks on a bodybuilding or physique competition. The people who listen to the show, they're really interested in health. So with that said, how do you view the health benefits of, say, a low body fat percentage versus, say, some of the things we're going to talk about, like the uh, acrylamides that get formed uh, during cooking or the heterocyclic amines or the, you know, the pesticides and, and the ages the advanced glycation in products. Can you walk us through like body fat percentage health and those other things that we're going to be speaking about? Yeah. So I think the first important thing to understand about what level of body fat constitutes healthy for an individual is going to depend on that individual. And part of this gets to a concept that hasn't received a lot of attention, in my opinion, called, it can colloquially be called the personal fat threshold. So your, uh, our listeners might be familiar with the concept of like metabolically healthy obese. And this is where, you know, someone has a lot of fat tissue and they're classified as obese, but they don't show signs of metabolic syndrome. They maintain their insulin sensitivity. Uh, They don't have high levels of inflammation, even though they're carrying around a high amount of fat tissue. On the opposite end of the spectrum, we have individuals who could be called uh, skinny fat. And you see people that, you know, look very thin, but they have diabetes, like type 2 diabetes. They developed it. And this relates to the concept of the personal fat threshold, which can be simply defined as the level of fat tissue that your body can store before the fat tissue becomes dysfunctional. Mm. Um, Because fat tissue is meant to serve as a, not only a reservoir of energy for when you don't have any food present, But it's also meant to be a buffer against the harmful effects of excess energy in the bloodstream, both fat and glucose. Um, We have terms for this, right? You have hyperglycemia, which is responsible for a lot of the complications of diabetes when it's chronically elevated. 
And you also have lipotoxicity, uh, which again is responsible for a lot of the complications of diabetes when it's elevated. And both of these are simply having too much glucose and fat respectively in your bloodstream and it damages the body. Fat tissue simply takes it up from the bloodstream so that those effects don't occur. But when you get dysfunctional fat tissue, uh, it basically says, and this is where we get into like insulin resistance, your fat tissue becomes overloaded with energy. So it starts to shut down the cellular signaling mechanisms for insulin so that it doesn't take in more energy because the cell needs to preserve itself. And the downfall of this is now you're going to be insulin resistant. You're going to have a harder time storing energy from the bloodstream. And that's when you start to see the development of diabetes, where you have excess fat in the blood, excess glucose in the blood, and all the complications that ensue. So when it comes to, well, how much fat loss is required to be healthy, for some people, it could be a very minor amount and they could carry around a lot of weight and maintain good metabolic health because they have a higher personal fat threshold. On the other hand, uh, you might have someone who's already within a normal weight body mass index range, but they're starting to develop diabetes and they're severely insulin resistant and they need to lose a lot more fat mass. But you look at them and you're like, well, where's the fat to lose? And you say, well, it's being stored around all of your organs, mm -hmm. right? Because your, the fat beneath the skin has already reached its threshold. And so it's saying no more energy. So your body's going to store, try to store that energy somewhere. And that's how you end up with fatty liver, fat around the pancreas, fat around the heart. So it's a matter of fat loss. It's just a matter of where's that fat coming from and what's your current threshold to where we can start to see metabolic improvements. Yeah, and the first question that I think will pop into everyone's mind listening, and definitely my mind, is how do we figure that out without doing like extensive blood testing? I mean, if you have one biomarker off, say like your hemoglobin A1C is up a little bit or something like that, is 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 that a sign or does it need to be multiple signs? I mean, what would you give as say a practical way of figuring this out and um, what should we be aware of that perhaps even our doctor isn't aware of that we're getting to to that point where we're storing that fat in the wrong places? Yeah, unfortunately, there isn't going to be a simple answer to this because blood testing is how we identify if there's stuff going on inside our body. You know, the mirror and how we feel can only tell us so much information. And regarding blood testing, you also can't really rely on any single marker. You need to look at a range of markers that relate to inflammation, blood glucose homeostasis, blood lipids, and to kind of figure out what's going on. As one example, if you brought up HbA1c, and that can be affected by simply having red blood cells that live longer or shorter than the average life because that would affect how much glycation they're exposed to regardless of your blood glucose levels. Um, all else being equal, let's say two people have average, the same average blood glucose levels, but one person's red blood cells have a longer lifespan, they're going to show a higher HbA1c even though they aren't at any different of an increased risk for diabetes based on that marker. Yeah, um, um, really yeah, go for it. You, you had a follow-up? Well, yeah, I was going to, to add the note that from a very general, like looking at the population level rather than the individual level, you know, if you, if you have a gut, I guess is the way of saying it, or for women, if you have, you know, excess fat, and we all know when we do have excess fat and it's probably in your best interest to lose it. 
Mm. This isn't this isn't to say that you will experience a benefit from being leaner, but the likelihood that you will is is higher. Now, this doesn't mean everyone needs to be ripped with abs. Right. But you I think everyone has a fairly good judgment of their own body to say, you know, if I'm able to grab a chunk of fat on my gut with my hand rather than, you know, just like a pinch, if I can literally grab fat on my gut, then it's going to be in your best interest to lose weight. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Especially uh, that the visceral fat. If you got that distended abdomen that you were talking about, it's a sign that the fat is storing itself in a in a very bad way around your organs. Um, Alex, we've talked a lot on this show, like I mentioned earlier, about calories, about protein, about exercise, and how all that fits together to lose body fat, regardless of you know low carb or low fat or whatever. But what we haven't talked about that much is how the cooking methods that we use can increase some of these weird sounding acronyms with very sciencey sounding names like the ages, the HCAs. Can you talk a little bit about uh, those things, the acrylamides, the ages, the HCAs, and how our choice of food and our choice of food preparation affects those? Yeah, I guess I'll start with AGEs, which are advanced glycation end products. And we have an increasing uh, body of evidence showing that having high levels of AGEs within the body promotes oxidative stress and inflammation and increases a person's risk for developing diseases such as type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, fatty liver, and Alzheimer's. And AGEs can be formed not just depending on, I mean, they're formed within the body. Uh, So this is what HbA1c measures in part uh, because that stands for glycated hemoglobin. So it's looking at the same thing, the level of glycation in the blood, but it's looking at how glycated uh, your iron transport system is in the red blood cells. In contrast, you know, AGEs can just kind of exist in the blood with common biomarkers being carboxymethylysine uh, or methylglycoxyl. And so, I mean, there's a variety of ways to measure it. But the point being that it's not just the amount that's produced within the body that contributes to the uh, stress it puts on our body, but we can also get significant amounts from our diet. And the way that we get them from the diet primarily has to do with our cooking methods. And so you have what can be classified as harsher cooking methods, which use high heat and have flame exposure. These are things like frying, broiling, grilling, and roasting. Whereas gentler methods of cooking dramatically reduce the production of these compounds in food, such as boiling, poaching, stewing, and steaming. And not all foods are affected equally. Uh, It doesn't matter how you cook a potato. It's not going to develop high levels of AGEs or other carcinogenic compounds, uh, except for acrylamide, if you deep fry it. But this is most applicable to meat because it's a result of an interaction with the amino acid component of food. And meat is obviously high in protein and therefore contains a lot of amino acids. And So we have data showing that uh, there's one study in particular I really like where they took a bunch of postmenopausal women and they had one group continue what they were doing for an entire year. And they, the other group, all they did was give them instructions to simply alter the way they cook their meat. That was, that was it. And so the women were told to not use the harsh 
cooking methods and instead to use the gentler ones when they cook meat. And then one year later, the women had cut their level of insulin resistance by 50% by simply, yeah, by simply just changing the way they cook their meat. And, you know, blood tests showed that their blood levels of AGEs were significantly reduced and that these reductions correlated with the reduction in insulin resistance. And so, yeah, go ahead. What were you going to say? Yeah, I was dying to jump in because I read something about this article termed it sugar sag and they were referring to ages and how not only it could lead to things like insulin resistance, as you mentioned, but also like uh, aging of the skin, just accelerated aging. And I wanted to know, is that something that you've read about as well? Uh, I can't speak to that with any confidence. Um, But from a metabolic health standpoint, they, they are detrimental and Increased, I mean, if I had to speculate, right, increased oxidative stress is known to lead to more wrinkly skin and poor aesthetics. And AGEs are well established to increase oxidative stress within the body. Uh, so it is logical, but I, I haven't looked into it specifically. Interesting. And uh, in that article, it was talking about the the cooking methods as well. And one thing that they talked about is uh, they brought up Asia. And as we spoke about earlier, I'm here in Thailand right now. And they, although they they have plenty of deep fried foods, uh, deep fried fish, deep fried, all all types of deep fried foods, and they have plenty of barbecue, but the majority of food that they eat, uh, at least from, you know, anecdotally speaking, what I I see in the, the particular neighborhood that I'm in, it's mostly food that's been cooked in it's been stewed or it's been steamed or it's, you know, and they were making a point that it may be something that Asians typically do uh, that leads to some of them. Like there's, there's 60 guys in their sixties walking around here and they got skin, better skin than some of the people that I know that are in their say forties for back in Miami beach. So I, w- I was just curious about, uh, you know, if you had any data on that, but it makes sense though, that ox, that increased oxidative stress. Um, do you know any of the, uh, could you speak to any of the data on like the Asian populations or even the blue zones and their cooking methods? No, I, I can't speak to those in confidence. I can say that you know, there's really uh, simple ways to reduce the generation of AGEs and all the other acronyms that you mentioned, uh, polycyclic, aromatic, hydrocarbons, heterocyclic amines, acrylamide. All you really need to do is, for example, one way to reduce them is marinate the food in vinegar. Uh, So coat it in vinegar before you cook it. That can dramatically reduce the uh, production of these compounds, as can coating it in herbs and spices like rosemary or oregano. And so when you look at traditional cooking methods of Asian and blue zone societies, these are things that they do. Uh, Mm. So while I can't speak to them specifically, I can say with confidence that uh, they cook their food in a way that naturally reduces the production of these compounds. Whereas when you look at Western society, you know, in here, let me give you a good example. Actually, when I was doing my, when I was getting my undergrad in business, I spent a semester studying abroad in China, um, in Chengdu of the Sichuan province. And when I was over there, uh, when they, the street vendors will have, some of them will have grills out where you select your food and then they grill it for you on the spot. And one of the kind of annoyances I had uh, was it took me a ridiculous amount of time to convince the vendors to 
not coat their food in this vinegar oil blend uh, because I didn't want to, you know, they don't use the best oils over there, the street vendors, and I didn't want to eat that. Um, so I just asked him, you know, just throw, for example, a chicken leg on the grill and let it cook without the marination. And it took me forever to convince them to do this because they don't think that food can cook without the coating. Like they, mm. they literally thought like, well, if I don't coat it in this, it's not going to cook. And I was trying to explain to them that we have this thing called barbecue in the U S and I guarantee it's going to cook just fine without <laughs> the oil. But the notion of these harsh cooking methods, just they, they just at a fundamental level, the society doesn't use them because they aren't raised with those methods being considered normal. They have no idea what they are. Um, so Western societies are very unique in their use of cooking methods like grilling over an open flame with smoke exposure and high heats that directly interact with the food. Not good. Although very tasty though, Alex. And yes, man, true. <laughs> but, uh, but I'll tell you what, I, I, I'm loving the way I'm eating right now and I want to keep that up. And um, yeah, it, it's a small price to pay, but if you're listening right now, definitely think about the way that you're cooking your food and think about, you know, not giving up the barbecue if you happen to be really into it or the smoked meat, but look for, start balancing things out. Start experimenting with different methods of cooking and perhaps you, it'll expand your cooking repertoire and your uh, number of recipes that you use as well. And Alex, man, you brought up something really important and something that's very controversial, cooking oils. And you said that they don't use the best oils in Chengdu. Uh, good. I'll keep my mind. Uh, I'll keep that in mind if I ever find myself over there. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, cooking oils, such a controversial thing, as I said, you know, people say that canola oil is bad for you, but then people are saying, oh, just use canola oil. It's not, not a big deal. Can you run us through what you know as the healthiest oils, not just for cooking, but also for, for salads uh, as well, or, or light sauteing? Yeah. Uh, so as a general rule of thumb, if you can just avoid oil when cooking altogether, then you're going, that's going to be the best option. And that's simply because, you know, this doesn't apply to all oils, but uh, any oil that is not saturated is going to be at a risk for um, becoming oxidized and going rancid, especially oils that are high in polyunsaturated fats. And these include any oil that's made from nuts, uh, it also includes, albeit to a lesser extent, olive oil, avocado oil, and other types of, and canola oil. So, at, you know, as a general rule of thumb, just limit the oils you use in cooking. It can also help with calorie intake. A lot of people don't realize how many calories they get from cooking oils, especially when we consider that, you know, a simple one tablespoon is going to be like 120 calories and that adds up really quickly over multiple meals. Wait a minute. I, I didn't, I didn't know that fat could make you. I thought the more fat you ate, the more fat you burned, Alex. Yeah. Unfortunately, <laughs> that's not the case. Yeah. Um, yeah. Unfortunately for everyone listening who is uh, putting MCT oil and, uh, and, and grass fed butter in their coffee every morning, and on their salads too, because yeah, it's going to help you lose fat. It doesn't. So story, uh, a podcast for another time, but I couldn't help myself. Yeah. When it comes to cooking, the other thing I would mention is a lot of people think that because of the issue with fat oxidation, a lot of people resort to using animal fats for cooking with the impression that they're superior to unsaturated fat oils. And the fat component of animal fats, such as tallow, lard, and butter, they're right. The fat component is more stable when exposed to heat and oxygen. However, animal fats don't just contain fat. They also contain cholesterol. 
and the cholesterol within these fats is very prone to becoming oxidized from mm. the heat oxygen exposure when you're cooking with these animal fats. And we have data that clearly shows that whereas oxidized fat, if you eat oxidized fat, it's going to be in circulation for maybe 12 hours and then it gets broken down, reesterified, gets removed from circulation and everything's hunky-dory. Oxidized cholesterol, on the other hand, is in circulation for more than three days and it actually gets incorporated into HDL and LDL particles and circulates in your blood for over 72 hours. And oxidized cholesterol is, there's no controversy with the fact that oxidized cholesterol plays a role in the formation of plaque within blood vessels. And we have human evidence showing that the oxidized cholesterol from the diet sits in circulation for forever. And we have an overwhelming amount of animal and mechanistic research showing that this oxidized cholesterol uh, contributes to plaque formation in the arteries and can contribute to cardiovascular disease. So it's, I recommend people don't cook with animal fats because of that cholesterol issue, despite the fact that the fat component is more stable. Um, so if you're going to cook with an oil, you would be best off using something like coconut oil, which is both saturated fat and contains no cholesterol. Or that's really good to know. Yeah. Yeah. Please keep, keep going. This is fascinating stuff, Alex. Yeah. But I don't think coconut oil is necessarily required either because I also don't recommend people cook with such high heats where they're going to surpass the smoke point of, you know, olive oil or avocado oil. And like I said earlier, you know, I would just prefer if people didn't cook with oils, period. If they want to use an oil for a salad dressing or whatever, then, you know, go for it. And if you're going to cook with an oil, don't use high heat cooking methods um, like frying. Don't don't fry your food. There's no reason. How do but you cook you do, your food? I actually use water. If I'm going to fry something, and I you know I challenge people to try this. If you're going to fry something, use water. It works surprisingly well, and especially because I often find myself I will put water in the pan and then cover the food with a lid. So then the water just becomes steam and you're essentially steaming your food in the pan rather than frying it. And it works for me. So, yeah, I, I've done that a lot too. I think uh, some people will find it hard because there's something that is very gratifying to the palate where if it's a little bit fried and it has that butter or, or oil fried texture with a little bit of browning on the meat. It just, uh, like for example, I, I used to cook a lot of stir fries and um, at first I wouldn't brown the meat. And then I took a class on wok cooking from this uh, Chinese uh, lady in, in Miami beach, who's, who's got these famous wok cooking classes. And I started charring or, or browning the meat rather not charring, but browning meat, it gives it such a different taste and texture. How do you make, how do you use this, this method that you're talking about, which I've tried before and just doesn't come out as tasty? How do you get around that? Well, I think part of it is just psychological. So for me personally, I actually dislike the added taste of oils because I really enjoy the natural taste of all the vegetables that I'm stir frying and the meat itself. And I think that having an oil takes away from those flavors. Uh, the other thing is that when I stir fry, even if my stir fry ends up being more of a, of like a giant steaming pile of food is I mix it with herbs and spices so I have a lot of added flavor from those compounds. And, you know, I, 
honestly, I think that part of the issue with with uh, Western society in general is that a lot of people look at food like they live to eat rather than they eat to live. Mm. And so I think part of it's just psychological in that, you know, one of the issues so many people struggle with weight and stuff is because they eat a lot of foods because they taste good. If people would focus less on flavor and more on the fact that the only reason we eat is to keep us alive, you know, I think we'd be a lot better off. And this isn't, you know, this isn't to discount the flavor of food. Obviously you want to eat stuff that tastes good. It's just, you know, save it for special occasions and, you know, focus on the health aspects of what you're eating more than the flavor 80% of the time. Yeah. Let's not get into a conversation about food reward and being hijacked by our brain to be uh, more or to have a, a greater tendency to getting to to wanting to eat those things that we shouldn't, but it, they just taste so good. But why do they even taste good? Who made them taste good? And it's just, you know, anyway, um, yeah, but you're bringing up a great point. You've got to really weigh the long-term consequences for that short-term shot of, you know, dopamine and endorphins, whatever get gets released in our brain when we have something that tastes really good. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with you, man. Save it for the special occasions. Alex, I, I would like to change gears just a little bit. Another controversial thing, and I, and I love what you brought up with the, the oils, and I'm, I'm very curious to hear your take on this. So organic food. Well, based on the research that I've seen, there's one thing that we can say for sure that organic food does based on the few studies and, you, you know, totally up for hearing if you have uh, something more recent. But we're not sure if lowering pesticide exposure through our food does anything clinically meaningful. And again, I'm totally, I, I can't wait to hear your answer on this, but I have seen research saying that, well, it does lower it and maybe erring on the side of caution when it comes to this stuff, if we can afford it, is probably a good thing to do. Now, what, what can you tell us about organic food, pesticide exposure, and our, the impact on our health? Yeah, so you're right. We do have studies showing that having people switch to organic food lowers levels of pesticides that are measured in their body. From a health standpoint of the food itself, the only meaningful difference between organic and conventional foods relates to the levels of bioactive compounds, uh, which is not insignificant considering that they're the primary reason eating a diversity of plant foods is healthy. Okay, can um, you can you uh, be, explain that? What you mean there? Do you mean yeah. the the vitamins and minerals, like, phytonutrients? Yeah, the phytonutrients, not the vitamins and minerals, but the the unique compounds within plants that give them their color, help them photosynthesize, all of those things. You know, you might have heard terms like uh, carotenoids, beta carotene, anthocyanins, flavonoids. These are all of the what are called bioactive compounds. Uh, or polyphenols. And so organic food has been shown to, on average, contain significantly more of these compounds than conventional foods. And part of the reason for that is because these compounds are produced by plants as a self-defense mechanism. Because Mm. organic tends to have less pesticide use, and again, this is crop-specific, But overall, less pesticide use means the plant needs to do more work itself. So it produces more of these compounds to keep itself alive. Whereas a lot of conventional crops have the pesticides do all the heavy lifting so they don't need to produce a lot of bioactive compounds. Makes sense. Um, uh, But with regard to health effects, and one of the things that is on my to-do list at some point in the future to look into is, is I want to know, you know, what 
pesticides are used on organic crops. Because I think there's a, a misconception that organic is free of pesticides, and that's not true. There is a list of at least 100 approved pesticides and insecticides to be used on uh, organic crops. It's just that they're considered organic because they don't contain synthetic ingredients. And mm. so I'm not sure if these pesticides have detrimental health effects or not. And we can't determine that based simply on the fact that they're natural and not synthetic. That is a logical fallacy, right? Poisonous mushrooms are natural and they will kill you. So that's something that I want to investigate in the future. I will say that generally speaking, you know, pesticide exposure should be taken seriously. Um, endocrine disrupting chemicals have pronounced health effects even at low levels of exposure and really? a lot of talk yes a lot of toxicology research assumes that these chemicals follow a linear monotonic dose response kind of you know you the effects are going to be the same at high levels of exposure as they are at low levels of exposure this is simply not true and you can't know the effect of a chemical unless you test it at very low levels of exposure, such as those that the general population is exposed to on a daily basis. Uh, one of the best known examples of this is BPA. We have data showing that BPA has certain health effects at low levels of exposure that it doesn't have at high levels of exposure. And what um, is it? Our body starts fighting back more? Is that what it is? Or... Why do those low fighting, levels? Yeah, it starts fighting back less, actually. Our body has detoxification methods in place to handle a lot of these chemicals. And those methods get overwhelmed at high levels of exposure, which is why we experience ill effects. Mm. At low levels of exposure, these defense mechanisms might not be triggered. So you, so you have zero defense, and then you have small little uh, amounts that can go uh, do whatever they do in the body without any interference from your body's defense mechanisms. Also, because they're endocrine disrupting chemicals, they interact with our body's hormonal system. And it does not take a lot of a high concentration to have those effects. Using testosterone, for example, free unbound testosterone in the body circulates at a pico gram level in the blood and it and you know it's pretty obvious a change of just five to ten picograms of free testosterone has huge effects in people that we can see with testosterone replacement therapy and testosterone deficiency especially in older adults if you have a chemical circulating at that level that can either block or mimic the effects of testosterone you're going to see those same effects. So I, I think the bottom line is that pesticides and the potential for them to be endocrine disrupting needs to be taken seriously. The problem is that it's a huge gray area because toxicology research hasn't appreciated the fact that many chemicals follow this biphasic response or what we could consider a U-shaped curve where uh, you have safety between a certain range. And once you get above and below that range, your risk starts to increase, right? It's shaped like a U. What would you recommend, Alex, as far as should we get rid of all the, the or, or should we rather buy organic toiletries and, and makeup and that type of thing? What, what would you recommend there to reduce the exposure of these endocrine disrupting chemicals? Um, well, when it comes to food, I think that buying organic when possible is a good idea. The issue is that, you know, there's, it's possible to look up things like how much pesticide are used on crops from places like the environmental working groups. But the other consideration is, well, how much, you know, 
how much of that is actually getting into your body. And we don't know the answer to that. And for a lot of foods, simply rinsing them, especially in like uh, baking soda water, can remove a lot of the pesticides. For other foods like bananas, since you don't eat the skin, then the pesticides, you're not going to be eating the pesticides. Avocados are another example. Uh, some foods like cabbage are so vile to insects that almost no pesticides need to be sprayed on them ever. Uh, so it's like, well, why even get organic then? And when it comes to health products, so with food, there's, there's a lot of unknown because you don't know how much pesticide is on whatever food you're about to eat. You don't know what the concentration is, right? Who cares if it had 10 different chemicals sprayed on it? If you're going to, if the concentrations of each are far too low to do anything. Right. But when it comes to cosmetic things like what you're using for shampoo, body wash, lotion, you know, all that stuff that gets absorbed through your skin, that is definitely an area where you have a lot more uh, knowledge, especially because you can look at the ingredients labels. And for those types of compounds, it I think it's a very smart move to make sure to look up the ingredients and make sure that none of them have been researched as being an endocrine disrupting chemical, especially because they're being absorbed through your skin directly into your bloodstream. Wow, Alex, this is such a mind blowing conversation. And I'll tell you why I, I really love uh, speaking with you because you're bringing up a lot of things that I've been doing for a long time or have heard about for a long time the ages, the eight, all the acronyms that you talked about. And, uh, you know, I was very into what, what I guess you would call holistic health after kind of finding my way into Paul Check's uh, certification system. I'm not sure if you know who that is. Uh, but then I got away from it because I was like, man, where's the, where's the evidence on this stuff? I mean, it all sounds right. You know, the, the evil pesticides and all that. Um, but how much does this really matter? And, you know, and, and now we have so much research and we have guys like you who are open-minded enough and analytical enough to really sift through the, the data and, and truly be evidence-based because Alex, I feel like a lot of evidence-based people are not really so scientifically minded. They're, they're more authoritarian or, and tribal and just sort of everything that, may fall under the tribe of holistic health or natural health or whatever you want to call it is uh, that's stupid. It's wrong. It's non-scientific and everything that's kind of like on the mainstream medicine or mainstream health side is right. And, you know, it, it, it's just great to speak with someone like yourself who's able to just use a, a, a fresh perspective and using evidence and then you know, making intelligent decisions based on what the evidence shows. Like you said, we're not exactly sure what this stuff is going to do when it comes to pesticides or when we can't assess how much is on our food uh, or any given piece of food that we eat. So it's just a, a great conversation, man. I, I really appreciate your your view and appreciate you. Well, thank you. Uh, I think it's, you know, a lot of people get kind of divided between, you know, even the words you used, you have like alternative medicine or mainstream medicine. And that division doesn't make any sense to me, right? Medicine is evidence-based. If there's, if it's evidence-based, it's, it's medicine. There is no alternative medicine, right? That's called pseudoscience. And that's things like homeopathy, um, endocrine disrupting chemicals, discussion about pesticides and uh, carcinogenic compounds produced from cooking methods. That's not alternative anything. That's, that's evidence-based medicine. And I think people would, would be surprised with the, uh, the amount of benefit they could experience from taking things like that more seriously and making a concentrated effort to alter their cooking methods, um, alter the fats they cook with, to reduce the levels, you know, to change their hair and skin products so that they pick ones that literally use more, you know, natural ingredients, even if it seems 
you know, uh, like a lot more woo rather than science, there, there is substantial evidence to suggest that you'll probably benefit. And yet it, it might not be a benefit that you can subjectively experience, right? You're not going to switch over and then suddenly feel amazing, but over the long term, uh, it can have a profound effect. This is how risk factors work. You know, having risk factors present doesn't mean you're going to get the disease or end result of whatever they're a risk factor for, but having, you know, heightened lifetime exposure to these risk factors does increase the chance that it would happen. And who wants to be at an increased risk for something going wrong? I hear that. Exactly. That's my thinking. And, uh, you know, some of these people who just sort of, right, look at it as woo or, uh, you know, unscientific, but just because it's it's been, you, you know, maybe talked about more or uh, popularized more in the alternative health or whatever you want to call those people. Yeah, it, it doesn't mean that it's not without merit. In fact, there's, um, you know, it's really important, all the things that you mentioned. Alex, well, man, this has been an incredible conversation. I feel like I could easily talk to you uh, for more hours, but you've given us so much information, so much practical information that we can go and use right away to start affecting our health without really doing that much. We just got to change our change the way we cook meat and change our cooking methods and, and maybe perhaps use a bit less oil and more steaming methods and just use that oil on our salads and you know, things, uh, things will be better off for us metabolically. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Awesome, man. Well, um, if you're listening right now and you want to find out more about Alex, he writes a lot of stuff over at examine.com, what we talked about in the beginning. Alex, do you have any other place that you'd like the listeners to perhaps reach out to you or, or to follow you? Well, I have a website called alexleaf.com. It's just my name, all one word, and then .com. And my original intent was to have it be you know, a place where I could blog. I do list all the podcasts that I've appeared on there. So you can, if you want to hear me talk more, you could go there to find other podcasts that I've appeared on. Uh, but the blogging hasn't worked out. I just haven't had time. Uh, thankfully, though, I do do plenty of blogging over at Examine, and you can read the articles we put out there. Excellent. Well, Alex, like I said, man, it was a pleasure. I really appreciate you and your perspective and you know what you're bringing to the health and fitness industry and to people who are searching for more science-based information, but really are concerned about these other things that kind of get thrown or, or overlooked rather because of the past association with more, you know, alternative health groups or natural health groups. So really appreciate you, man. Keep doing what you're doing and want to do this again soon. Yeah. Just let me know. It was a lot of fun, Ted. That wraps up another episode of the legendary life podcast. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Alex Leaf. And I hope you're going to put some of those suggestions into play. I'm gonna, I, I want you to start paying attention to the cooking methods that you use. It's such low-hanging fruit, and it can make a, a difference if you're looking to optimize your health. If you have some issues with pre-diabetes or diabetes even, if you want to balance things out and reduce those chemicals like advanced glycation in products and heterocyclic amines and polyaromatic hydrocarbons. Those are the types of things that you can affect with your choices of cooking. And also, Alex brought up a great point about not using oil when you cook. Why do you have to use oil? Well, I've always used oil. Well, that's not a great reason, especially when um, oil is and just added fats have the highest amount of calories around. I mean, it's just a, a tablespoon of olive oil or, or really any type of oil contains about 14 grams of fat. That works out to be about 119 calories that you're just adding into what you're already eating. So if you're pouring that on your meat to marinate it, if you're pouring it on your salad 
to <laughs> to give it that kick. Or if you're under the impression, oh, the more the more fat I eat, the healthier I get because it's healthier fats. You're missing the picture, my friend. You need to go back and listen to more of the episodes because the calories in the food that you eat matter. So all those lessons today, I hope you learned a lot and I want you to try some of this stuff out and see if you start to notice a difference. And like I mentioned earlier, sharing is caring. So if you want more good information like this, please share it with your friends. Share it with your friends who need to know this information because they're missing it. They're getting inundated by all the misinformation out there. And that's my job. I bring you the science-based information that actually works. That's why we like science. It's not because we're nerds and geeks, even though we are, but it really is about getting actual results. So share this with your friends, share it on social media, share it in emails, help get the word out about good quality information like what we're hearing from Alex. And of course, if this is your first time listening, hit that subscribe button so that every time one of my episodes goes live on Monday and Wednesday, you will be the first to know. That's all I've got, my friend. I hope you enjoyed this one and I'll speak to you soon.